everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across ASEAN. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Ankur Joshi, founder and CEO of Nuclei, a B2B SaaS fintech that helps banks deliver consumer-centric experiences to their customers. Ankur grew up in India, is an IIT grad, and has been a serial entrepreneur for more than 10 years. He's worked in startups covering everything from e-commerce to quick-serve restaurants to app aggregation, and he has used his lessons across industries and startups as he builds Nuclei. Nuclei was founded in 2018 in India, but aims to serve a global market. Nuclei has several modular products targeting different banking verticals that enable banks to operate like a fintech, resulting in a seamless consumer experience. To date, Nuclei has been a bootstrap business and currently serves more than 18 banks across the globe. You can learn more about them by visiting gonuclei.com. And now a word from our sponsors. everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with The Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what The Green Room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Ankur, thank you so much for joining the Green Room today. We're really excited uh, to have this conversation. Thank you, Amrita, for having me. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Um, So, Ankur, before we get into Nuclei and how you've grown the business, I really want to talk about your background. And I, I think you're currently based in Bangalore. But I think in our first conversation, you told me that you grew up in a village. And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that and how that, you know, village life has influenced your career. So not, not exactly a village, a small town. The village where our family comes from, there are about what, 600, 800 odd people who live in that village. Okay. Uh, that's the town which I come from, where I grew up and where I studied, uh, it, it was a mid-sized town, but still, you know, maybe... 100 times or maybe 1000 times smaller than Bombay, right? So, yeah, I mean, back then in early 90s, uh, mid 90s, it was a small town. Uh, we're not exposed to a lot of things. And coming from a family which was quite honestly at the lowest rung of the Maslow's hierarchy, right? They're struggling to put food on the table. My, my parents used to play uh, sports. They used to, like, my dad used to represent Madhya Pradesh, my mom used to represent UP. and. Uh, they you know struggled uh, in their lives. My dad lost his father early on. My mother lost uh, her mother when she was I think seven years old. So they had a lot of struggle uh, during their when they were growing up. And when they married, they were very very clear about one thing that 
the only way out of this uh, for our kids is going to be education so they were very sure that they would provide the best education possible uh, to me and because of the financial restraints they had only one kid they didn't want two kids because otherwise they wouldn't be able to afford it so that's like that that's where i grew up in indore uh, they sent me to the best school uh, it was a decent upbringing middle very middle class upbringing uh, i was coached from day one from probably when i was 6 7 years old on the dining table that you know what you have to debate you have to participate in every debate every conversation which is going on on the dining table and if you don't know anything about it go and read about it and then come the next day and debate right so that's that that upbringing kind of you know nurtured me into a person who was very curious so made me read a lot of history made me read, read a lot of geography like i'm i'm a very very fascinated with the topography i'm very fascinated i always take the window seat on the you know in the in a plane because the best i seat. want to see how yeah i want to see how how the you know landscape changes how the old rivers which have dried out have still left their mark on the landscape right so uh, it just kind of made me and i was not i did not of course realize it at that point of time this is all in hindsight that those conversations forced me to become a very curious person and over a period of time education remained the core focus uh studied hard during the school uh went to id bombay into the three passed out into the seven joined deutsche bank because they were paying the most i had calls from a few iims at that point of time to do my mba but the amount of money the bank was paying was crazy so and that that honestly was a life changing decision not just for me but for my family because it gave them that financial security i think that job moved us as a family out of the lowest rung into the first rung where we had some sort of or at least we could start thinking about having some sort of a financial security right that changed a lot uh, in terms of dynamics uh, with my parents uh, my dad started taking a lot more risks in his business so his business picked up uh, recently well uh, during the mid 2000s uh, and he you know till date he has been, been independent i don't think he'll need any assistance from me whatsoever ever and that's that's really liberating uh, as a single child not just for me but also for my parents right it gave them a lot of confidence that they don't have to depend on anyone that job did quite a few things for me personally uh, of course you know it pushed me in a area where i got exposed globally to different cultures coming from a small town then you know spending four years in bombay i had just experienced india i had not experienced other cultures uh history was also like my exposure was only limited to history what i had read in history right so having interacted with you know people from australia japan singapore then having lived in london for some time it kind of opened up my horizon widened my world view and gave me a lot of insights into what exactly do i want to do in life and gave me a metric that you know what i have to become successful in life and money is not the only metric of success so that's when you know having spent around 3 3 and a half years in deutsche bank uh, the overall startup journey started uh, the way of life changed after that uh, it had stopped being a 9 to 5 role it started being a 24 7 role uh, and it has been the same since the last since 2010 or so yeah so yeah, that's it in a nutshell 
Yeah, thanks, Ankur. That's that's really amazing uh, to learn about the intellectual curiosity that you developed at the dining table as a kid, and how that's you know driven you for for a lot of your career. And you know, you you did go to IIT Mumbai, uh, and then you did work at Deutsche Bank, uh, and it seems like that was like extremely life changing for you and for your family. You talked about how your your that helped your father take some more risks with his own business. But it also sounds like it may have led you to take some more risks because you also became a founder after working at Deutsche Bank. So tell me a little bit about that. Why why did you decide to move from that, what I assume is a very stable job at Deutsche Bank, uh, to become a founder? So again, the definition or the main reason at that point of time was uh, not very mature in hindsight. It was, you know, I had this, you know, uh, sense that I want my destiny in my own hands. It's only, you know, over the over the years, you realize that it's not possible to have that, right? It's it's impossible to do that. But at that point of time, I'm, you know, working in a very big organization, working in a setup which was not exactly zero to one, right? Uh, thousand, thousand, tens of thousands of employees. You're working on a smaller piece. You can define your successes or success metrics in that smaller piece as well. I mean, nothing wrong in that. A lot of people have become successful. A lot of my friends have become successful uh, in Deutsche Bank and other industrial banking jobs. But it was just not for me. Uh, I wanted a lot more zero to one journeys. Uh, I wanted to build something from the scratch. Uh, and that's what propelled me over the years to you know move out of Deutsche Bank and start up. And that, that's been the case throughout. Like I, I still don't feel the reason I did not join the company which acquired us, uh, acquired our last company was also the same, but their scale is massive. Uh, they're probably solving 100,000 to a million scale problems, right? I don't think I fit into that. I'm still that zero to one, one to 10, and still learning to be that 10 to 100 guy, right? Hmm. So, and this is where I enjoy the most. Like all the zero to one journeys, all the different products that we have built over the years, that's what, you know, brings the twinkle in the eyes. That's what, you know, brings out the fire in the belly, right? So. I realized that uh, some sometime in 2009, 2010, that that's exactly what I want to do. Uh, that's my, you know, go-to place when I want to be happy, and that that's what makes brings me joy. So that zero to one journeys, one to ten journeys are what you know makes me happy, and uh, it has like that. That's what we have been doing for the last uh, thirteen years now, thirteen years. Wow, that's amazing, Ankur. And for our audience who is listening to this podcast, uh, I'm actually looking at Ankur right now, and I can see the sparkle in his eyes when he talks about bringing a company from from zero to one. It's it's definitely there. Um, so, Ankur, you you've started several companies at this point and worked in some pretty key roles in early stage companies. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those startups that you founded? It seems like they've been across like various industries. Correct. Okay, okay. So I've been. I've worked in investment banking. I have run a chain of restaurants. I've done a startup in pharmaceutical space. I have run a B2C company, a B2C app. And with Nuclear, we are building products for retail banking, for corporate banking, uh, for junior banking, for credit cards. So yeah, like a lot of spectrums have been covered. And uh, I keep always wondering that I'm not a specialist in any of these sectors, right? But the fact that Having faced problems while running a restaurant, you can always draw parallels from those problems into when you are, you know, working across any of the sectors. And having information or having information across so many different sectors, you can always relate or connect those points and come up with, you know, novel solutions or different solutions, even in a completely unrelated business. So that I believe has helped me a lot 
of course having this wide base of industries and uh, maybe not being a specialist in all of them but having 80% knowledge in all of them gives you a lot many mental models or frameworks to work with uh, and that has helped a lot so post deutsche bank i started a chain of restaurants in india uh, we scaled up to around 10 odd restaurants fairly profitable but it became a lifestyle business and at that point of time in 2015 uh, you know we decided that you know what let it run the way it is running uh, and i decided to move into technology space so then did a tech platform b2b marketplace uh, from a farm in, in the pharmaceutical space that did not scale up at all it failed miserably so we shut that down within a year then we built up a app called tabzo which was a b2c app it was kind of a similar to what paytm and phonepay were building at that point of time we built it up over a two to a half year period that got acquired by an e-commerce major in 2018 uh, and all these three startups were uh, vc funded uh, post that acquisition as i mentioned earlier that i did not want to join uh, a place which was not solving a zero to one problem so decided not to join that company and you know few of us moved away and started nucleon later part of 2018 one key difference we did not raise any capital yeah so we completely bootstrapped it we have for 6 months was self funding but then after it has always been profitable and uh, we intend to run it like that like we want to keep a long term view for the company to build it we don't want to think about exits uh, and that is one of the reasons why we are building multiple products within the same company by raising external capital which is not strategic in nature or which is looking for an exit in 5 or 6 years you're forced to change your long term view you're forced to think short term right so that was one of the reasons why we did not raise external capital because we wanted to think very very long term yeah that's that's really interesting akar and i want to spend a few more minutes talking about that that bootstrapping but maybe before that i just going back to tapzo according to techcrunch amazon was the buyer in 2018 for 40 million and i guess I, I want to dig in a little bit on Tapso and understand that was a fintech business, and it was a really interesting play for Amazon uh, or and several other e-commerce you know companies um, from the West. We're trying to get into the Indian market. What made Tapso so exciting for Amazon, especially as like an entree into the Indian market? So that one of them, I think, uh, PhonePay and PayTM were far ahead of Amazon uh, when it came to, or you think of Amazon Pay as a, a separate business unit, right? So they were far ahead of Amazon, and mm-hmm. Amazon had a couple of options in front of them, whether to build it on their own or you know purchase the existing product and kind of reshape it into Amazon Pay. Um, I don't know the internal dynamics or any internal conversation which was going on, but ultimately they decided to you know purchase and then build on top of it. so that's what they did but obviously it gave them a you know head start it, it brought them at par with phone pay and ptm uh, fairly fast and from what i know they have been doing really really well that's great that's great and i think it it makes sense though based on you saying you want to, you like being a zero to one person to not actually stay at amazon to actually go on and build something on your own so that's great um let's talk about nuclei because i think that uh obviously is where you are now it's where you're spending all your time and i am really curious about this idea to bootstrap because at, i mean nuclei started in 2018 so that means for the last 3 years you've basically taken zero outside vc funding and okay. i think your reasoning that you explained before makes sense but this was also the last 3 years has been a time when we saw a ton of vc funding particularly for fintechs uh at crazy high valuations how i mean what kind of challenges did you face when you were actually bootstrapping how did you actually do it so 
I'm not going to say that it was easy. It was extremely, extremely tough. Uh, specifically, the first one and a half years were very, very tough till I think around uh, 2019 end, early 2020. And then for a few months, it became even tougher because pandemic hit and we had absolutely no clue what was going to happen. Right? People were talking about doomsday scenarios. And uh, there, was, there was a very chaotic period, not just for us, I think for the whole world, the first, I think the second quarter of 2020, right? And our only motto during April, May, June of 2020 was survive. Let's just survive, right? We had enough capital. It was not that we were running out of capital, but we had no clue what was going to happen from an external variables perspective. Right. And, you know, information was coming in every day, every week, new information was coming in. And we were not sure whether we'll be able to expand the business outside of India, we'll be able to travel or not, will people come back to office or not. A lot of new things were happening. But the first one and a half years were definitely tough. Uh, a few months were there, we were there, you know, where our cash flows were really, really touch and go. I can say that safely today. But at that moment of time, I, I had to keep a brave face in front of the team. But uh, they were really touch and go. Uh, yeah. In hindsight, it was all worth it. In hindsight, it was all worth it. Why? Because uh, what you see in 2021, what happened with excessive funds coming in, and then what you see in early 2020, what is happening with a lot of down rounds happening, right? Who loses out, essentially? People feel that founders lose out. Why? Because they lose a lot of equity. But it's actually not the founders who lose out the most. It's the employees. It's the team which loses out the most. Because their ESOP pool essentially shrinks by a big margin. Yeah. Why? Because of the down round, the investors increase their equity. The investors have to keep the founders. Otherwise, who will run the company, right? So a lot of times founders are given extra equity so that their skin is still in the game, but then no one cares about the ease of pool. And yeah. because of the lack of clarity, because it's not completely transparent. Also, people don't even realize that they have lost a lot of value on their you know options. Uh, it's only when the liquidity event, if at all that happens that they realize that, you know, they had no clue that there was no value whatsoever, right? They have invested years of their time and they end up with, next to nothing. So that's something which we are now seeing across the board because the awareness has also increased around, you know, options, ESOPs, etc. A lot of people are also becoming more aware, asking the right questions. And this is something which, you know, we also wanted to do internally, make sure that everyone is aware of about what options they are getting, uh, how will their equity get valued, etc, etc. Having said that, we also did a few things differently. We, instead of doing a 10% ESOP pool or instead of even doing ESOPs, we did equity stock appreciation rights, mm -hmm. right? And instead of putting aside 10% for our employees, we put aside 25% for our employees. Wow. So that's huge. Yeah. That is huge. But I think that's also fair because at the end of the day, it's not others or the senior team or me who are going to build the team, build the company, right? It's going to be a collective effort. And that collective effort needs to reflect into the value which gets created for everyone. So that I, I don't even know if we ever thought twice about that decision. It was very, very clear to us that this needs to be done because it is the right thing to do. And not just for the team, but for the company. Right. Right. Because 90% of a million dollar versus 75% of a hundred million dollar. Right. So what would you want? So percentages don't really matter. The absolute value is what really is, uh, you know, where the value is. So we have been, you know, kind of 
we struggled the first one and a half years still ended up being profitable we didn't lose money still ended up being profitable but the cash flow struggle was there i think post the second half of 2020 uh, we went in a very comfortable position we went live got lucky we went live with major banks right before the pandemic so their cash flow started coming in on a month on month basis uh, second half of 2020 onwards we have been very comfortable we don't need capital today uh, to run the business uh, we have multiple products we have diversified across multiple geographies but if at all there is a strategic capital which is there which will help the company grow much much faster we are not saying no to that so long term capital is something which is welcome short term capital is not so that that in the you know overview since day one got it got it that's um very clear anchor and i think you know that's it's uh it's an incredible strategy at a time when i think so many other founders have been have been relying on outside vc capital it's just been so easy to say yes uh because there's just been so much money floating around so you know lots of credit to you for sticking to your guns and saying no we're going to bootstrap this i do also you know we it sounds like yes in 2020 there were some struggles but it's been profitable since then and we're potentially about to get into another recessionary environment Do you have any advice for other founders and operators who may have to take on more of a bootstrapping strategy in the next two months in, in the next few months like what what is your what is your advice to them So again this is anecdotal but what I have seen is a lot of and and this is this is a difference which I've seen across the first time founders second time founders or you know the third fourth time founders and I'm talking about not just India but I've seen this across multiple geographies the first time founders of course I'm generalizing but a lot of them raise capital for external validation in a lot of business models that capital is not even required they still go ahead and raise that capital because it is available they go ahead and raise that capital because in the hope that the vc will help them grow the business right uh, angels definitely help grow the business vcs are sitting with a portfolio of 100 200 companies like they are not going to focus on your company alone they will probably end up coming to your office once a quarter for the board meeting but that's it right so you have to put in all your effort to grow your business no one else is going to help you no one else is going to come and do sales for you you have to do that i think because of that a lot of founders raise capital for external validation and you know end up in trouble second and also from a product perspective right a lot of first time founders are very very products focused uh, not distribution focused mm-hmm. i think that's something which needs to change that if you're short of capital focus first on distribution because product you can always improve but if you bring in a very good product and don't have a distribution no one is going to even look at that product because it's not distributed well right so in our case also we were very clear that even if our product is not 90% there even if it is only 75% there make sure that we have the distribution right we can always go back and improve the product but if we don't get a good amount of distribution then we are not going to become successful so our focus even today with every product that we are developing is to get the right amount of distribution first and then parallelly keep on building the product and improving the product yes yeah, so to anyone who is facing funding crunches or you know does not have a visibility of when the next funding round is going to come the first thing you should do is just get rid of you know excessive uh, expenses be extremely prudent about your costs be extremely extremely prudent it's it's also very difficult to do this midway during the journey because when you have raised capital you are under pressure to spend that capital and it's very easy to let go of you know controls spend 
you know, not negotiate well, spend money on things which are not even required. And then when the capital gets tightened, if you have to reduce it, the team doesn't take it well and you lose a lot of people. But if the mantra is to survive, you have to survive in any which ways, right? It doesn't really matter. You have to survive. And that's something which needs to be done. The second is focus on distribution, focus on the right metrics, forget about the vanity metrics, just, just completely focus on sanity metrics. Look, I mean, the path to profitability, which everyone talks about, right? It's a, it's also a cyclical thing because every three years, VCs come and say that, don't worry about profit, only look after uh, expansion. Then when the cycle changes, they say, just focus on paths to profitability, uh, growth capital is not going to be there, etc. But Every seasoned founder, every, anyone who has, you know, run businesses, multiple businesses has done or run business over many years would know that it doesn't really matter. The capital will come and go. It is cyclical in nature. What should survive is the company. Yeah. Yeah. So if focus is on that survival of the company, then I think it will survive. If the focus is on just raising capital, then, you know, uh, the downturn or cycle will change at some point of time. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really great advice. I hope uh, all of the founders and operators listening um, take heed. I want to switch gears a little bit and actually talk about Nuclei uh, mm-hmm. and about, about the product that you're building. So, you know, start, let's start at the top. Um, can you tell us about Nuclei, the core products, the core customers, and maybe some of your traction to date? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started Nuclei, we were very clear that the core objective was to create a multiple or diverse stream of revenues diversified across uh, geographies, diversified across multiple products. And we focused on banks to start with because banks were okay paying us money upfront. We were bootstrapped, so we didn't have capital or had limited capital. So we focused on banks upfront. And we were very clear that we have to go to a bank and solve multiple pain points for them and across their multiple verticals, right? So whether it is retail banking, whether it is uh, commercial banking or corporate business banking, whether it is their IT team or whether it is their digital banking team, right? If we go and solve multiple problems for these three, four, five teams within a bank, banking in general is a very homogeneous business or a vertical, right? So the problems which a bank in India might be facing, there is a very high probability that a bank in Philippines or a bank in Egypt might be facing similar problems. So a product could scale up nicely if you're solving the right problem. And over a period of time, we have now expanded into four different products. Uh, one which helps the digital banking team, one which helps the retail banking team, one which helps the IT team, and one which is helping the commercial banking or the business banking team. And that's the latest product which we are developing. And over the years, our objective has also been that whichever next product we develop, it should make us more in ARR than the previous product. Got it. So that we are continuously chasing a higher high, right? We are continuously upgrading our products, continuously reaching a place where the company makes more revenue for the X amount of capital invested. So the ROI keeps on increasing. So currently we are building a, a marketplace from a commercial banking perspective where uh, we are working around a solution for uh, corporate cards or commercial cards, helping banks make commercial cards more relevant in today's uh, day and age. Uh, if you look at any bank for that matter, right? And if you look at the retail uh, credit cards, they would have host of credit cards, probably more than 30 variants of retail credit cards, right? But if you look at the commercial commercial cards, they would have probably one or two. And that's the big gap, which we are currently our platform, which we are building will help solve. And we are working very closely with MasterCard on that. Uh, and, you know, with several banks as well in India, as well as outside of India. Uh, yeah. And we are hoping that this will, this will take us globally. 
right? So this particular product uh, and this particular problem statement is not just limited to Asia or Middle East or Africa. It is also very much relevant in Europe, very much relevant in North America as well as Latin America, right? So that's something when we are doing our primary research over the last six, seven months, we realized that this is a product which will take us truly, truly global. We're currently only restricted to the uh, Middle East, Africa and uh, APAC region. But yeah, that's one which I'm very bullish about. And uh, yeah, we are all working hard to, to make it successful. That's great. That's great. And it sounds like you're touching many different parts of, of your bank customers, um, their own value chain. So that makes you indispensable to them. Although I have to ask, um, and maybe this is a rhetorical question at this point, but why wouldn't banks just build these solutions themselves? Uh, why do they need a nuclei to come in and help them? So I give you a very uh, non-obvious answer, right? Because the obvious answer is that it takes them time. It takes, but I'll tell you a step deeper why it takes them time, right? There is a process in a big organization of procurement. There is a process from a legal perspective uh, of you know onboarding a particular partner. When you are building a platform, when you are building a marketplace. We partner with like for our commercial banking uh, product, we are partnering with around seventy odd people on the supply side. On the demand side, then we supply this platform to the bank. If a bank has to contract or sign contracts with 70 entities, it's going to take them three years because they have to do their proper due diligence. There's a process, there are multiple teams. Uh, they have other you know, priorities as well. It's not that this is their only priority. So I'm not saying they're inefficient. I'm just saying that it is not their only priority. For us, it is our only priority, right? So we are laser focused on getting these 70 contracts done within a period of two months. We'll deploy maybe 15 people whose job from waking up to they go to sleep is only to get these contracts signed, right? And that's where the difference comes in. Because we are small, we are laser focused, it's easier for us to do compared to a retail banker who also has to worry about lending, who also has to worry about NPAs, who also has to worry about customer acquisition, who also has to worry about their branch banking or their ATM banking or their digital banking, right? So it's not that this is their only and core focus, but for us it is, and therefore we are much, much faster. Got it. Plus, when we build this, the cost for us to build versus cost for us, cost for a bank to build, there is a massive gap because there is a economies of scale which comes in as, as this platform gets distributed to multiple banks. So you're not going to go and charge the cost of building this product equal to that to each and every bank. We are going to, of course, spread it out. So it becomes very, very cheap for a bank. Got it. Really, real like economies of scale there. And and it sounds like uh, all of those like 17 providers, service providers, then uh, the bank will have access to them via the Nuclei platform, uh, yeah, which yeah. which is really um, real great for the banks. Yeah. I do have to ask though, you know, it's Nuclei is is a SaaS business, and meeting your bank customers' needs. Yes, there's a platform, but I'm sure there's some bespoke something here or there that needs to get done, and. I'm just wondering about like, how does this balance, uh, how, how do you balance this with your team's ability to scale? I mean, we often hear about, we've had, you know, founders on this, on this podcast that have talked about how they're working with banks and there's so much pressure to deliver bespoke solutions. You obviously can't build a bespoke solution for, for every bank if you want to scale. So how have you, uh, and, and the Nuclei team been able to balance that, you know, that tension? So we have kind of solved it to a certain extent, but of course we cannot solve it hundred uh, percent. If you have to build a product, which is truly scalable, we cannot build a bespoke solution, right? What we have actually done is that check with banks. What do they really care about? 
what do they really care about and what they really care about is that for a customer when they land on the platform it should not it should look and feel like a bank the same bank right and the only thing they cared about was the brand guidelines they were okay if the button is you know maybe not 20% bigger they were okay if the corners were you know instead of you know sharp corners they were rounded corners but they were not okay if the color brand color of the bank goes from say white to light blue and that's something which we solved directly from the back end that we created multiple uh, you know versions of it we enabled the solution to have control back end control on certain ui parameters and if you look at our solution which you have developed deployed across multiple banks right is the same solution but when you go to a bank a when you move from the banks within the banks app from banking page to our our solution you wouldn't even like you wouldn't even notice the difference it's that seamless wow and when when that seamlessness comes to the picture the bankers also become comfortable so like it, it took us a while to develop those solutions uh, initially maybe in the first year or so but then once we were there i think it got sorted and now we have adopted a new technology called flutter across the board so that brings in another level of uh, advantage because we are now able to deploy features directly from the backend without requiring a, or without depending on the bank to release a app to play store or app store uh, you know we are completely independent of their mobile app or their website we can you know release directly from the backend of course take approval from the banks but release directly from the backend so that makes us more agile and our solution more agile got it and and i guess maybe last question here but are there any maybe what are some of the major challenges working working with banks are there any banks that are particularly visionary um are there any ideal qualities uh for for a bank partner uh maybe just in case there are any bankers listening to this <laughs> so i wouldn't take names because i have worked with so many banks uh, but definitely there are a few banks uh, where we have loved working with them so there are a few banks who have actually pushed us to do better and uh, i i don't say that lightly at all but uh, it, it has been it has been very impressive it has been very you know from a work perspective it has been really really good for us we have enjoyed working with certain banks but over a period of time if i look at it at a general level i also appreciate the challenges they face with the you know regulatory changes which have been coming in over the last 5 or years with the amount of pressure these people are under from an information security perspective or from a it compliance perspective and you have seen across the world right like how how regulators have come down on all the banks so i can understand the challenges these guys face in moving fast and you know while complying with these requirements at the same time it's very easy for a startup to say that a big bank is not fast but it's also true that the startup does not follow the due diligence processes right or you know kind of policies required in a 20000 people organization versus a 100 people organization so you can't have similar policies uh, across both or both those organizations and they are there for a reason can the banks improve of course i mean, I mean can the startups improve of course they can also right so it's not that anyone is perfect but i think banks get a lot of unfair coverage from a speed perspective etc from the market and i don't think that's fair at least not to every bank some banks could be possibly but not not to every bank for sure and that that i mean this i'm telling you from the for my from my first hand experience so the banks have really really enjoyed working with them and they are very aggressive that's really great to hear and and we do know that there are some examples of banks that are moving really fast they want they they operate like fintechs yeah. some of them 
you know, could, could perhaps are, you know, building similar solutions themselves. Uh, and, and that's great. But then, as you said, there may be another tranche of banks that want to work fast. They just don't have the DNA to do so. But if they're receptive and you can empathize with one another uh, around the issues and challenges, then you can you can actually work together in a collaborative way. So I think that's... Yeah, that's like awesome. DBS in Singapore, DBS in Singapore, they're like one of the best banks we have worked with. Uh, ICICI in India, like again, one of the best banks ever, the Federal Bank in India, uh, which is run, but uh, look at look at the way they think uh, about yeah. digital. Really refreshing. Yeah, it's, that's so great to hear. That's so great to hear. So, Ankar, at this point, we've got a few minutes left, so I kind of want to zoom out a little bit um, and talk mm-hmm. about the global build business that you're building. Um, it seems, uh, you know, as the world is opening up, we're finally able to like properly travel again, um, sometimes with a COVID test, sometimes without. It's easy to feel more like a global citizen today than it was, you know, a couple of years ago. But Nuclei has been built for a global audience from from day one. And I think this is super different from what a lot of startups do, particularly fintechs, which is build for a certain segment um, or a certain market and then expand from there. So can you share a little bit how this global view from day one has shaped some of your key decisions, both internally and externally? So when we were starting Nuclei, one of the first things we did was list down all the failures we have had over the last eight, nine years. And the first failure, which I told you was we were thinking short term, we're not thinking long term. So we promised ourselves that whatever decision we do, we'll always think long term, right? The second failure was we were not thinking big enough. We were always, always thinking small, whether it was in the restaurant business or the pharmaceutical business or the B2C business, right? We were always thinking small. And from some different perspective, if you look at it, we were thinking small. And that's when we decided that, you know what, if we have to build nuclear, it has to be global from day one. We might go global a couple of years later. That's absolutely okay. But our mindset needs to be thinking about global audience from day one. It cannot be thinking about only India. And we have to then, you know, capture or cover for multi-currency uh, product. We have to cover for multilingual product. And those decisions, from, even from a technical architecture perspective, right, from day one, were very, very beautiful for us. Why? Right? Because today we don't have to go back and pay that tech debt and make it multilingual or make it multi-currency uh, later, right? The product is already built in that fashion. And we were very clear that India is one single economy, right? If you're talking about diversifying our revenue stream, if you're talking about thinking long-term, that means surviving the long-term. That also means distrib- you know, diversifying across a variety of factors. The revenue should come from different geographies. The revenue should come from different products. And the way we are kind of uh, looking at diversification is we have a you know three by three matrix of geographies, products, and industries. So today we only work with banks, but we are soon expanding into telcos as well. Uh, we'll soon start working with a few fintechs as well. The idea is that you pick one of those three Right, so a industry, a product, a geography. The amount of revenue that combination should make us should cover the costs of the company, should break even the company, and that's the goal right now over the next five seven years. That we should fairly soon reach a place where uh, we are diversified, truly diversified. So tomorrow, if even if a single economy uh, suffers, the company, the team, right, the company of people which we are building, which is our core product, by the way, should not suffer, should survive. Right. So that fear of failure, although we don't fear failure from a success perspective, because we believe that, you know, failure is a path towards success, but the fear of failure or fear of dying is what is propelling our decisions in order to 
make sure that we don't we survive, we don't die, and we eventually will succeed. Why? Because the probability of success will increase if we don't die. Yeah, well, that's some that's some good motivation. Um, <laughs> fear of dying. Um, make sure you make sure you survive. I think that's that's awesome. Um, you did say something really interesting a second ago that I don't want to glaze over, which is that your team is your core product. Can you tell me a little bit more about like the team, especially building a global team? I think most of your team is still based in India, but as the world is, you know, opening up and we think about having global and remote teams um, and, you know, them being such a core part of your business. How are you thinking about talent management in, in this type of world? So talent management has been tough for us because for starters, we are not a VC funded company, right? So attracting talent required us to create a niche for ourselves from day one, because whenever someone considers a company, specifically a startup, uh, which is not funded, right? So suddenly questions start raising that, how will these guys survive, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to struggle the first two years in creating a niche for ourselves. But I think we have kind of created a niche uh, in terms of the culture we are developing, in terms of you know being consistent about our objective of running a profitable company. Even when you know the country was flush with funds in 2021, we are not raising. We did not raise any capital. It was not for the dearth of opportunities, right? Uh, we used to get so many inbounds, but we were not raising any. We did not raise any capital because, again, we were very clear that we have to not fail. We have to think long term and not get into a cycle of uh, focusing on short term. Over a period of time, of course, we have built a very young team together. Like our probably the average age is around 25 odd. I'm the Second oldest member in the team at 36. So, yeah, uh, yeah that, that's that's there. But uh, I think when you hire kids in their early 20s and give them a lot of responsibilities, give them a lot of freedom, not everyone is built to take that freedom and responsibility. But those who do, it, it's really magical to see them get to work. So kids at 25 years uh, of age are leading a product which they're going to take global, right? It's really exciting for them. It's really exciting for me personally. Uh, and that's what we are here for, right? Because at the end of the day, this product may survive 10 years, may survive 20 years, but what will remain 30 years from now is the memory of building these products, right? The zero to one journeys. Yeah. That's what those, those are the core memories which we will form and remember. Money is a byproduct for all of us. So, if we do the right things, if we build the right way, I think money will come. That's I, I don't think we are worried about that part. We are worried about building the core memories, building the right product, going to market, working, and by enjoying working with our clients. Uh, that that's what we are focused on. Yeah, yeah. When you were saying that about you know twenty taking twenty five year olds and giving them a lot of responsibility and seeing seeing them run with it, I'm just you know thinking back to some people I've worked with and uh, you know in various roles of various startups over over time. And yeah, you're right. There's such inspirational young people out there that are gonna that are gonna change the world, and it's better to have them on your team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, like from an expansion perspective, we've just set up our office in Dubai. We'll set up soon in Singapore as well. From a talent perspective as well, we are look. We are looking in different geographies to you know expand the team. I, I'm not too sure about from a tech perspective. There are a couple of geographies where we'll hire tech people from, but definitely from a business development perspective, we'll uh, set up all satellite offices and you know, hire locally. Yes. Awesome, awesome. And I guess to that point, um, in thinking about expanding to new markets uh, and as a global business, for to you right right now, what are the most attractive markets, particularly around Asia, um, when it comes to building for banks and 
has have any other um, criteria played a role, such as like regulation or other stakeholders? I know you've got partnerships with Mastercard and Microsoft. Have any of those other stakeholders played a played a role in shaping your global growth trajectory? Oh, of course. Like our uh, partnership with Mastercard and Microsoft as well. Like it's been very very critical. The first thing is they lend us credibility. Right. Whenever you are sitting in front of a bank, when they know that we work with both of these organizations, and I have massive respect for both of uh, these organizations because they have built tremendous enterprise businesses. Right. They help us in getting insights across multiple markets. They help they guide us in terms of how a product should be developed, etc. Uh, as well as from a growth perspective, from a distribution perspective. Uh, now we are kind of leaning on them to help us uh, distribute our products across the globe in a much much faster way. So. that definitely gives us entry points into multiple geographies uh, southeast asia is a big focus for us our team as we speak is currently in malaysia singapore indonesia uh, meeting bankers and again philippines also we, we had been there met bankers these are all you know core geographies for us apart from india and middle east as well but further to this we'll be expanding into africa as well as europe as the next steps and then maybe later uh, next next year later next year maybe in the americas got it that's great anchor excited to see that growth um i realize we're just about out of time so i have one yeah. last question for you um so, and it's perhaps the most important one <laughs> in our first conversation you told me that you're a dog lover i'm also a dog lover and i think you know one of the things that we talked about was how some of these furry friends have influenced our lives particularly when it comes to you know our work life so maybe for you anchor can you tell us about uh can you tell us about your dogs and um how they've influenced you in in how you run run your business at nuclei so it's for me it's a very easy answer uh we got our first dog in 2017 early the second one came in late 2018 both are rescue uh, street dogs and uh, the biggest impact both of them have had on me uh, they've made me kinder way 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 kinder than i was they've made me more empathetic and for just one simple reason you become an average of five living beings around you right the only emotion they have is of love they don't show any other emotion so uh, like as we speak my dog is sitting right next to me she can't stay away from me and even if you know i don't pay attention to her she's always here loyal and always there to love me and that that you absorb that emotion and that gets reflected in how you run your company because you suddenly start becoming more empathetic towards everyone else right if i have to compare myself to the 5 year back version of ankur like i actually laugh at that version why because that person was absolutely foolish <laughs> had no clue, had no clue in life, had no empathy. I mean, I wouldn't say no empathy, but very little empathy compared to what I, the level of empathy which I have today. And I have to credit my dogs for that because over the last three, three two years, two years, yeah, two, two and two and a half years, specifically when all of us have been working from home, right? I've spent so much time with them. They've had a massive impact on me. Absolutely, yeah, love them yeah. to bits. Thanks, Ankur. Thanks for sharing that. It's a beautiful note to end on today. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for being here with us and for our audience for listening in. Um, yeah, Ankur, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Amrita. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey. 
Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would also really appreciate you leaving us five stars and a review. And if you know anyone who would be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.